Welcome to the Standing Up to Pots podcast, otherwise known as the Potscast. This podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering the community about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, commonly referred to as POTS. This invisible illness impacts millions and we are committed to explaining the basics, raising awareness, exploring the research, and empowering patients to not only survive, but thrive. This is the Standing Up to Pots podcast. Hello, mast cell patients and lovely people who care about mast cell patients. I'm Jill Brooke, and this is our fourth episode of Mast Cell Matters, where we go deep on all things related to mast cell activation syndrome, or MCAS. We have a fantastic episode for you today with two world-class MCAS experts. The first is our guest host, Dr. Tanya Dempsey, who is a Johns Hopkins-trained specialist in complex chronic disorders of immune dysregulation. And thank you for hosting, Dr. Dempsey. Which of your amazing mast cell expert colleagues did you bring with you today? Today, I'm excited to have Dr. Lenny Weinstock with us here all the way from St. Louis. Dr. Weinstock was born and raised in New York, but moved to St. Louis in 1985. He received his medical training in Rochester, New York, and completed his gastroenterology fellowship at Washington University. He's board certified in both internal medicine and gastroenterology. And he's an associate professor of clinical medicine and surgery at the Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Weinstock's lectures and research have been presented at national and international conferences on small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, low-dose naltrexone, restless leg syndrome, rosacea, and mast cell activation syndrome. And we're really honored to have Dr. Weinstock here with us today to talk about all things mast cell and GI. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have to say, actually, I think that Dr. Weinstock's research might be the research that I end up talking about the most with my nutrition clients. I feel like I talk about you several times a day, so I don't know if your ears are ringing, but your research is so important. It really is. Yeah. You're so welcome. So nice to hear. So let's dig in, Dr. Weinstock, and why don't we start with a background about mast cells in the GI tract? And I kind of want to start there and then sort of you know, go more systemic. But maybe we can just start there and you could tell us a little bit about their role, manifestations, and things like that. Sure. Well, the fact is, mast cells are many places. And there are many places where the environment meets the gut, environment meets the air. Environmental factors play a big role in activating the mast cell activation syndrome. And it is exceedingly common to have it in the gut, if not as possibly always. Perhaps I have one patient out of 320 that had low counts, but virtually everybody else that I tested has what we call high counts. That's in debate these days, but nonetheless, it's a very common factor. And I think it's common because not only do the mast cells in the gut cause symptoms locally, but distant because they secrete chemicals that are carried off in the bloodstream and create trouble wherever they go. Gotcha. Yep. I couldn't agree more with you about the systemic nature of it and the interaction between mast cells in the gut and elsewhere. Lots of conditions that occur in the GI tract and, and lots of conditions that overlap with mast cell activation syndrome. But you know, one of the things that I know you've spoken a lot about at different conferences is SIBO. Right, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And maybe we can talk a little bit about your experience with the interaction between SIBO and MCAS and how that also may lead to a more systemic effect. 
Sure. Well, I looked at approximately 125 patients with mast cell activation syndrome and then looked at their lactulose breath test and found that that 30% of these patients who had undiagnosed irritable bowel symptom-like problems, 30% had a positive breath test with hydrogen, 10% had a problem with methane. But there were a lot of other patients who had bloating without markers for bacterial imbalance. And discussed this at our meetings and feel that it's the chemicals that create either a paralysis or fluid coming into the gut to fill up the small intestine with fluid, kind of a secretory phenomenon, creating bloating. And sometimes it's just paralysis and you get air and distension. And other times it's actually fluid and patients have no evidence for gas just by percussing and testing them for kind of that bloated sound. And so certainly chemicals play a big role. So the other issue about SIBO is that it creates inflammation. It activates the T and the B cells and the mast cells or even the normal mast cells. And it can also cause secretion of cytokines, which are inflammatory chemicals, creating an inflammatory condition in the body, which is why I think we see a lot of issues with restless leg syndrome and rosacea in general. Rosacea is not a big one for MCAS, but certainly restless leg syndrome is. In any event, SIBO plays a role and treating that is at least a correctable problem that would reduce the inflammation that some of our MCAS patients have. Great. And what would your approach be to that? We don't have to go into like great, great detail, but it would be nice to sort of understand from a gastroenterologist perspective how you might approach a patient who has MCAS and who you find this condition SIBO in. Right. So often the SIBO causes or amplifies the bloating, amplifies the abdominal pain, diarrhea, constipation. Sometimes it really holds to the truth of hydrogen excess causes bloating and diarrhea, and methane overgrowth causes bloating and constipation. And bloating, constipation due to methane may just be an overgrowth of the methane in the colon, but not in the small intestine. So there are different patterns that are seen with bacterial imbalance. And the treatment is different. We also have another bad actor, hydrogen sulfide. And, you know, you get at that by talking to the patient about the gas and saying, does it ever have a rotten egg odor or sulfuric or smell? And then that's treated yet in a different way with different antibiotic therapy or herbal therapy, such as oregano. Dr. Weinstock, I know there's a lot of listeners who have POTS or MCAS and they feel like they get bloated so often after no matter what they eat. And they're probably wondering right now, if I bloat, does that mean I have MCAS or does that mean I have SIBO? And in your experience, is bloating something that can be caused by a hundred different underlying problems or is it pretty diagnostic of MCAS and or SIBO? Wow, that's a big question. That's a loaded question. But the fact is, is that it, it varies quite a bit. As you say, somebody got MCAS and have bloating because abdominal pain associated with the release of chemicals can cause this 
natural relaxation of the abdominal muscles. So it's like you've eaten too much of Thanksgiving. You've got to find room to put all that. And basically the belly bloats out because the abdominal wall muscles relax and the diaphragms go down. And so people will show me pictures of themselves bloated out. But it doesn't mean that they have bacterial overgrowth. In fact, those patients who MKS, I'll, I'll see them, they'll have a trigger, one thing or another. One woman has a trigger before she was treated and diagnosed, of course, of driving to see me on rough roads from Southern Illinois. And just that vibration would cause an attack and bloat. And she'd come in really distended and she didn't have SIBO. But treating, aggressively treating her MKS got rid of that. And certainly certain foods could trigger it. Now, if you take one population who are just plain old SIBO, they had post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome, and they have bacterial overgrowth because of the anti-vincorum antibody that slows down the migrating motor complex, allowing for bacterial overgrowth. Well, those patients will, let's say, have gluten or sugar, They'll feed the bacteria and they'll bloat up accordingly. Whereas if it's strictly gas only and the gluten, which is often a really tough product to handle, will cause an attack, an, an activation of the mast cells, well, then they'll bloat up and be distended as well, but it's for a different reason. And then finally, you'll have a mix of the two. The, you'll have the carbohydrate load for somebody with SIBO and MKS, and they get a double whammy of bloating, pain, inflammation, and maybe they're also going to have symptoms elsewhere, like hives, for instance, or itching, or edema as a full-blown attack. Yeah, and it was a great answer. And so then, how do you approach these patients to try to figure out which water more of those conditions are really happening in the patients or what's your thought process and also workup process for these patients? Right. So I will ask about the bad odors of the gas and if they don't have it, then I will just run them through a regular lactulose breath test looking at hydrogen and methane. I pretty much do it on virtually every person unless somebody says, no, this is just spontaneous bloating. You know, a lot of things are going on. I'm having an attack. And then I spontaneously blow. I may not do a breath test for that patient because I'm really thinking that it's primarily a mast cell activation phenomenon. In fact, if you look at Dr. Moldering's questionnaire, he specifically says spontaneous bloating is one of the check marks, which is more of an MCAS problem. Gotcha. And then after you've asked these questions and you've done a SIBO test in some of those patients, then what's your next step? So let's say it's hydrogen only, and then I'll try to get rifaximin for them. Some people do pretty well with herbal antibiotics, and there's some that are better situated for hydrogen plus methane, hydrogen alone, or methane by itself. And then if they do happen to be tested with the Trio Smart for hydrogen sulfide, then you, you use high dose oregano for that or a three week course of refaxin. I think you also think about motility 
I think a little less about motility enthusiasms because the mast cells, not only they like living in the uh, environmental surfaces, but they also like living next to nerves. And that's been shown in a number of ways, including anatomically. And so when they show next to nerves, then they throw off the parasympathetic balance and they may have decreased peristalsis because of that and bacterial overgrowth. And I think in that situation, what you're trying to do is to get control over MCAS and you won't necessarily need the prokinetic therapy that we need in regular run-of-the-mill seed bottle. Right. Right. And so what would your approach with NCAS of these patients be? What's your sort of first line? Okay. So step one therapy is H1, H2 blocker, BID twice a day. It's vitamin C and vitamin D. It's quercetin or leodolin. And it's low-dose naltrexone. cell. So basically five over-the-counter products and one prescription for naltrexone. Great. This is a great segue because I really wanted to talk more about low-dose naltrexone because obviously this is an interest of yours. It's an interest of mine as well. And I use quite a bit of it in my practice. So I'd love to hear from you how you're treating patients with it, what the current research is with LDN. Okay. Right. Well, when you look at the actual potential physiology of how naltrexone and the downstream effects of naltrexone can work, then you want to think about the fact that there are toll receptors on the activating side of mast cells and naltrexone is a toll receptor block. So on inflammatory cells, it binds to the toll receptor and decreases cytokine production. And when you're decreasing cytokine production by mast cells or other inflammatory cells, then you're reducing the things that could activate mast cells and normal mast cells and aggressively unregulated mast cells that are the basis of MCAS. So that's one thing. Then the other thing is that after the naltrexone binds for six hours and comes off, you get a burst of endorphins. And endorphins reduce inflammation, reduce T-cell and B-cell activation. And T-cells have these microparticles that activate mast cells, which therefore would be decreasing the cytokines and reducing again, the inflammatory diseases that we see and the activation of now cells, both normal and abnormal. So there are a couple of things that are clearly mapped out on paper that you can say, okay, this makes sense. This is not just hands waving. This is real. This is a phenomenon that you can find in research papers. Now, how does it really work out for the patient? So I did look at 116 of my first patients that were given naltrexone, gave them a handout with a questionnaire, and 60% found significant benefit from naltrexone, 20% didn't help. And also with respect to side effects, try to ramp up slowly, but even with that, people can have side effects. There's no 100% drug. There's no 90% drug. There's no 70% drug. So 
60% is pretty good. And also with respect to side effects, try to ramp up slowly, but even with that, people can have side effects and have to either go down on their dose or they have to stop. And in general, as we know, mast cell patients are just much more sensitive to any therapy. So it's kind of amazing that you could give somebody some motorine and they'd be sick from the thimotidine, which is pretty basic. Now, is it due to the thimotidine or is it due to the excipients, the preservatives, food dyes, the packaging material? Could be all three. Yeah. But rarely the actual drug, because I've had patients respond poorly just to compounded medications. Yes. Of course, now charge sounds compounded, but still, some people can't endure the endorsement rush, if you will. Oh. And that's part of the problem is with the LDF. But I've had a number of MPS patients who tell me, you know, they ran out of their network zone for a few days and they really started feeling bad and uh, they needed it back. And it's a great drug because you can stop it if you need to, if you're in surgery and you're going to get an opioid, no withdrawal, no issues. It can then be restarted right away. So as an anti-narcotic opioid antagonist, I feel like it's almost a homeopathic dosing, if you will. Right. I find it to be a very good modality to try. Well, Dr. Weinstock, I think a lot of people wonder about LDN versus sodium chromalin, because I think they have it in their head that sodium chromalin is the go-to GI medicine for MCAS. But I just wanted to clarify that you're saying you actually go to LDN first. I do. And part of that is the expense and the fact that there are other things that chromalin won't do. Because, you know, how often do we see muscle aching and fatigue? as major issues. I guess I view chromalin more as gut specific. Although the fact is, is that it can help other things if you're getting a lot of distant phenomenon from cytokines caused by eating and so forth. And it's expensive. And then you also have to worry about activation caused by high dose chromalin. So you have to gear up and start slowly. And I just find it a little trickier. I definitely do a lot of it. I definitely have seen a number of patients say it's a wonder drug for them. And I prescribed it today to a patient. So I do it on a regular basis, but why do I do now church zone first? I just feel like it's much more bang for the buck and I'm going to come to it sooner than later. It sounds like I mean, most of us who use LDN know, know that there has to be some ramp up with it as well, but it's maybe not quite the ramp up we do with chromalin. Typically, where do you usually start and where do you end? Because I've been feeling in my own practice that I'm pushing the boundaries. I'm going higher on the LDN that I had in the past. And for some patients, I'm starting lower because of how sensitive they are. So I'm curious about what your approach is. I will try one milligram and increase it every four to seven days. Okay. And get up to four, and then they report back to me, and then we go to 4.5. If I truly think that there's a major, major element of concomitant chronic fatigue syndrome, then I'll think about doing four and a half at night and one in the morning. So I do start with one milligram in the morning, 
And I know some of the prescribers of LDF from a study that I did just inquiring from LDF prescribers that about two thirds to three quarters of people started at night. I usually started in the day just because I think there's less side effects from it, but if you're going to get the indulgent rush and it's at the noon, then some of it will wear off, but you're getting some of the benefits no matter what. The people who are hooked on the idea of nighttime, they're playing into the circadian rhythm where most is released normally at four in the morning. But, you know, what if you boost that too much, then maybe you'll get the dreams and insomnia. And so that's part of the problem. So it's an issue and it's an art, not necessarily science. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as far as going higher, Right off the bat, going to six or eight or 10, I generally don't. Gotcha. So you feel yes. that as you go up yeah. in dosage, you're sort of changing the, the pharmacokinetics, so to speak, of the drug. Yes. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Great. There's anything else to talk about LDN? Well, let's do that now, because then I want to talk a little bit about diet and food, specifically with MCAS patients. So- are there specific diets that you talk to your patients about, specific foods that you talk to them about? You know, we have Jill here who's a nutritionist and I know she has an approach, right? I have an approach and I'm curious from the gastroenterologist in the group here. What do you talk to patients about in terms of their diet? Or do you? I do. Well, it's anything like manual that I give them as well. But the fact is, is that they come up with this. I follow Dr. Moldering's advice and his big compendium of therapy. He goes through basically suggesting that they go on a gluten-free, dairy-free, and a yeast-free diet for three to four weeks and look for triggers and look for high, high histamine flukes to avoid. Well, that's a lot to deal with, but they can really make a difference. As far as the winners, I think in terms of what to exclude, it's the dairy and gluten. And, and I think that people will have their bad days with the high histamines as well, but that's probably going to be bad for most patients with MTS. So it's an issue. And as far as gas problems, if they don't have SIBO, but they are smelling a lot of gas, you could just say, okay, just do the low FODMAP diet. And that could be helpful. And if they have SIBO, I don't go into long issues with that in terms of being very strict, but certainly long-term, no high fructose corn syrup. Because if there are no remaining bacteria, they just love to eat the fructose. But even fruit has fructose too. Would you say that that could be problematic for these patients? It's not so much the fruit. It's more of the high fructose corn syrup. It's really very high doses, much more concentrated. It really sounds like there's no right diet for everyone. I think that's sort of the way I see it with my patients too. You know, overall, gluten and dairy are the big, big ones that we have to eliminate. But after that, right, it's very, very individualized. What about the patient that has a very limited diet because of their MCAS? They can only tolerate three foods, five foods. How do you approach those patients in terms of then expanding their diets? Well, one of these things is to get hold of the EPCAS and get it better. Because, and I think those patients, I'm very quick 
to start on Chrome. Okay. Okay, so that's number one. So that really has made a difference. I do worry about the patients and you know, those are the patients that I'm going to suggest they do supplement, maybe even Neocake Junior, which is expensive, but it's an elemental diet they can often tolerate. If their body weight is low, MCT oil on top of things for the facts that not really avoiding. And sometimes pea protein or case hormone can be helpful too. Right. But the bottom line is you have to stabilize their immune system and their mast cells specifically, right? Right. For sure. So I want to jump back a little bit. We were talking about SIBO. And actually, one of the other things I was thinking about that would be good to cover is this uh, sort of entity called CFO or fungal overgrowth. Can we Talk a little bit about its relationship to MCAS and what the approach might be for that. And do you see that with SIBO together? Right. So it can be together. Dr. Rao in Augusta has done some great work in terms of culturing the duodenum for fungus and has found lots of coexisting organisms. And I'm just getting into some of the companies to look for cultures for fungal elements in mm-hmm. the stool. But the problem is they may not make it down in the stool. They may live mainly in the uh, small intestine. Right. Obviously, I would see though. And what do I do with it? I ask the patients who either fail to respond to the SIBO therapy with a positive breath test. I ask them, have they been treated for years on and off with the antibiotics? If they have vaginal yeast infections frequently, and do they have gas? And yet it's not foul smelling and they've got the bloating and maybe sugar rushes. And then at the end of the day, it's really guesswork. And I'll often, when I'm stuck, try them on therapy. And usually it's fluconazole with the protocol that Satish Rao came up with, which is 100 daily for 21 days. And it can be a winner sometimes, for sure. And I have a patient with MCAS, I was just thinking about this, who with neem and nystatin, she's gone from three foods to 25 foods. I just heard from her from the other day, and she said, can I change the doses? But there you go. That's an example of treating some underlying cause to allow the gut lining to heal. And then going from there. And then there are other things that you do to heal the gut lining. Because why are we having so much trouble with particular foods? Is it because it's specifically, you have too many mast cells, but again, usually they're down deeper, but the leaky gut, increased intestinal permeability, bacterial overgrowth, or just damage to the gut lining, we're getting larger pieces of the food coming through and therefore they're activating the white blood cells down below. And so I think we have to think about modalities like SPE and zinc and endozinc carnosine that will help heal the gut lining as well. And the first thing you mentioned is that bovine immunoglobulins? Yeah, serum bovine immunoglobulin. Okay. Okay. 
Dr. Weinstock, can I ask you, are you having patients have any success with some of the probiotics that claim to help with mast cell activation syndrome? Because there's a number of products out there and a lot of people are trying them, but I haven't really seen any data. Are you getting a feel of whether those are effective or not? We had somebody post a list of beneficial bacteria in terms of reducing histamine output on our recent webinar, but it's on my list of things to do for natural products because a lot of people do want more natural or less drug-induced, drug-mediated products. But I haven't seen definitive benefit yet, but I'm just getting started. I would be more pro-probiotic. And I'll add my two cents on that. <laughs> Where I think both probiotics are helpful is in a patient who's very sensitive, who is particularly histamine sensitive or they're histamine intolerant or histamine is one of the main mediators that their mast cell makes. And so you have to think about the histamine component. You know they need some probiotics, but they are very sensitive to probiotics, whether that's because of the SIBO or whether it's because of their MCAS. And so some of those probiotics, like I might start with like lactobacillus rhamnosus, one strain, I know that it's going to be helpful in breaking down histamine. But in terms of like the long-term effects of how it's helping their gut overall, right? I think it's still early. Like, I don't know if I have the data to say that, but I know that I've been really successful at getting patients on some of those probiotics when they have not been able to tolerate probiotics in the past. So that's my two cents. I think there's some benefit, but you know what? It's not measurable right now. And so I don't know exactly what it's doing overall. I think it's a piece of the puzzle. I don't think I can say that that alone is the intervention that turns them around. But I think it's part of that process of helping with the leaky gut, helping with the microbiome. But it's small, like it's a baby step, I think. Well, part of the problem is that, number one, most in the gut are anaerobic. And there really are not anaerobic products True. around. And so as soon as you take it, it's exposed to air and acid. And so you're going to break it down. So how much yeah. of it gives through is really questionable. If you get spore formed, it's probably Yeah, better. I was just going to say, I think spores probably make more sense, right? Okay. And I think patients tolerate that a little better. I think the MCAS patients seem to tolerate the spore ones. Right? Everyone's different. I, IBS. You mentioned that. I, yeah, I wanted to dig into that too. Yes, please. Let's go. Yeah. What is IBS? IBS is a bunch of stuff. <laughs> it's really in terms of causes, you know, I just saying somebody has IBS is doing yep. a disservice. Yeah, I just have to say you have a syndrome of typical symptoms for one thing or another, but basically we have to dissect the cause. We have to cut up the pie and take the slices that have names to them out of the pie of IBS and therefore say, okay, this slice of pie is SIBO. Take it out of the pie pan. It's not IBS anymore. It's IBS sleep. Same thing for MCAS. And I say take a big portion of the pie out of the pie pan and put it in your MCAS dish because that's what we're dealing with. I just see so many patients who are over the years, decades have been told they have irritable bowel syndrome, but you start treating them for SIBO, everything melts away and goes away. It's the same thing for celiacs, for gluten sensitivity, for food sensitivity. You know, these things are lumped together and it's easier for doctors to deal with it because they weren't taught all these things. Very few people know about MGS and it's 
what I keep on saying and keep on wishing in a way is that some dean of a medical school has uh, a daughter, granddaughter, uh, probably who has MKOS and who has PIs, and then they'll change what is taught at the medical school. But if that's where it's going to take, I mean, it's going to take something on the personal basis for the person in charge of what is taught in medical school. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And unfortunately, right, because IBS is a sort of like a basket garbage pail term, I don't know what's the best way to describe it. So the problem is that patients are often sort of then thought to have, it's a psychiatric thing, it's anxiety. It's not because it doesn't really have the resource to support it like SIBO. So that it really does a disservice to patients to not have a really true diagnosis. So hopefully that will change over time, right? So what is your approach then? So IBS, right? So you said it could be different things. So what are you testing for in those patients? I'm going to back to what happened in medical school. You know, you take a history, you look at a review of system. The review of systems used to drive me crazy because you have to ask all 50 questions. And as a person, a little tongue-tied and as a medical student, that was a bad thing. But now I've got a form. So I look at a form that people <laughs> with complex symptoms have and uh, utilize Dr. Moldering's mast cell activation syndrome questionnaire. It's actually MCMRS, mast cell mediator release syndrome questions. And I utilize that to do a framework. Well, is this suspicious? For MCAS, because they have hives, itching, intellectual, they have spots that are red and get worse with, with a flare, and that and they have thurigo, and they have ringing of the ears for no good reason, and so forth. So you put all these things together, and it starts to paint a picture. Okay, this person is suspicious MCAS, along with their GI symptoms that any, you know, Tom, Dick, or Harry, gastroenterologist is going to say irritable bowel, goodbye, see you in a year. But if you take that IBS patient back and then you bring along the painted picture of what uh, S has, then you say, okay, could this IBS patient have MCAS? And does that explain their functional GI symptoms? They've had upper endoscopy, colonoscopy, CAT scan, et cetera, et cetera. Everything's negative. But if you just put it, the story together, then you could do testing. And this is where I find that the blood tests and urine tests are really important. I think the last time I looked at it in 300 patients, it was close to 75% of my patients had one or more positive tests, which helps me believe in the diagnosis for them as MCAS, especially if they respond to therapy. And maybe swayed by the fact that I see a lot of patients who have seen two gastroenterologists and have their tests so they don't have Crohn's disease, they don't have ulcerative colitis, they don't have celiac disease, so they have something else. And the fact is, many times, it's MCAS. And why doesn't that surprise me? Well, a lot of these patients coming to me do have MCAS, mast cell activation syndrome, 70% of them had families with similar symptoms have MCAS. Well, it's a self-selected group in a way, right? But I think the general population is probably afflicted 17% in Germany, but maybe more out there. Right. And maybe less and maybe more in maybe 
more or less in America, but if you start looking at all the idiopathic, namely unexplained syndromes, it's tremendous. I mean, you look at interstitial cystitis, restless leg syndrome, you look at maso activation syndrome, irritable bowel, migraine, fibromyalgia, chronic yeah. fatigue, and so forth. And you put all these things together, I mean, just by themselves, it's clearly 40% of the population. Very few people are normal. And so, you know, and so in our MCAS patients, 40% had restless leg syndrome. And normally, 7 to 10% of the population has restless leg syndrome. So that's one of the things that I ask about. Dr. Weinstock, can I follow up? You have been mentioning a couple times the survey that you used that was created by Dr. Mulderings and his colleagues. Do you just mind saying what that is and how you use it? Sure. First of all, I have a number of patients who are filling out my spot and saying, I think I have MCAS. That's what they tell my secretary. She writes it down, possible MCAS. I say, okay, mail on the questionnaire and the review of systems. So it's a five-page questionnaire, and the review of systems is a two-page questionnaire. And so we're looking for the two-pager review of systems, five or more systems affected by symptoms. And for the mast cell activation questionnaire, which is really the mast cell mediator release syndrome questionnaire, which could be caused by mastocytosis, it could be cosmic. A person having 10 different diseases, which is usually not the case, but usually you're looking for an umbrella to put all these symptoms under so that you can make some sense out of it, especially when you get a clinical story that adds to it. Then you're going to count up the points. You're going to look at the severity score and that's going to help. So for instance, a lot of people have seasonal allergies and there's spots to click off through the ringing of the ears, runny nose, GIs, sores in the mouth. That gives you one point. And yet uh, there are other questions that are higher point scales like flushing, can be more characteristic for mass cell activation syndrome. But you also look at the severity score. So one way I utilized this was in a long COVID study. And I looked at three groups, long COVID, patients and they scored their severity scale of this questionnaire before and after COVID retrospectively. And then looking at a group of mast cell patients, they scored their symptoms two years before they were diagnosed. So they were all diagnosed within two years. And before they were diagnosed, they filled out the questionnaire and retroactively filled it out. And then a general population control group who were just generally healthy, but if they had COVID ever, or they were pregnant, they couldn't fill it out. And so it turns out that the score was about 10 for the general healthy group, but very minor symptom severity intensity. Whereas if you looked at the COVID folks before they ever had COVID, it was the same. So they were like control group, but with the MCAS patients, basically before they were ever treated and diagnosed for MCAS, they had very high numbers and high intensity scores equal to what you had when you were at long COVID. So, you know, nobody's normal. Nobody has a zero score just about, and it's very uncommon. So 
somebody's going to have the sniffles or something. But if you really look at the total numbers, if you're getting scores of 26 and 30, and they have intensity score of 10 or 8 or 7 for a lot of these things, you're going to show that the suspected MCAS patient is so much different than a normal person that you develop this painting, if you will, that just colors it MCAS. And so can I ask about the COVID group then? That then the COVID group looked like the MCAS group is interesting. Exactly. Yeah. They had virtually all the same set of symptoms. And many of our long COVID patients do yeah. respond to mast cell therapy, but you know, it's complex because yeah. you know, it's vascular, it's inflammatory, it's multifactorial for sure. Things. More complicated, but MCAS is, seems to be a yeah. piece of the puzzle. Yes. Great. This has been great. We're probably just about at the end. So I'll ask you one more question. What's a take-home message for the listeners? What would you like them to know? One last thing. Be your own advocate, I guess, is the best thing. Look hard to find somebody who has an open mind. Maybe it's worth the investment in a concierge doctor if you're getting nowhere for your first year or two and then get a diagnosis and move on. Possibly. There are so many things that you can do, actually, that are over the counter that's worth even trying. So if you empirically find that changing your diet and taking a couple of antihistamines, vitamins, and flavonoids, which would be quercetin or leodolin, and you find there's measurable improvement, that might be great evidence to be able to take to the doctor. And then finally, unfortunately, diagnostic criteria is defined differently and you're just not going to be helped by most allergists. I will say that. And that's a problem. Now, you can get somewhere if you've got hives and asthma. You can get somewhere with many of the common folks, but unfortunately... It's a bad situation because many of them will check things that are never going to be positive or very rarely like a tryptase level. And yet it's engraved in the, in the stone of their home, so to speak. It's like the tablets of the 10 commandments. And you know, one of them is <laughs> if you want to be considered an MCAS, you get out of the high. Triptase level. Well, that just doesn't happen very often. So I feel bad for that. I feel bad for patients. So the bottom line is that we have to train more doctors to understand this, right? And like you said, maybe at the medical school level, we've got to start teaching it because there's just not enough of us out there to treat all the patients who need it. Very true. That's why we're so grateful you're doing this. Thank you. Dr. Weinstock, thank you so much for joining me today. I learned so much. I love hearing you speak. And uh, it was a real pleasure and an honor to have you. Thank you. Next month, we have Dr. Linda Bluestein, a Mayo Clinic trained expert in MCAS, pain and joint hypermobility syndromes. And she'll be joining us then. Dr. Dempsey and Dr. Weinstock, thank you so much for this great information and for all that you do to help MCAS patients. It is such a thrill to have you together today. And we're just so grateful for all you do. 
And hey, listeners, that's all for now. But we'll be back again next week with a normal episode of the podcast. And we'll be back again next month for another episode of Mast Cell Matters. Until then, thank you for listening. May your mast cells behave themselves. And please join us again soon. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Consult your healthcare team about what's right for you. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can send us feedback or make a tax-deductible donation at www.standinguptopots.org. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing to our podcast and sharing it with your friends and family. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thepotscast.com. Thanks for listening.